Former Los Angeles rock radio personalities Ken Anthony and Frankie DeVita were looking for an outlet to continue to talk about their passions, radio and music. The radio landscape has changed so much over the years, and this podcast is their new avenue to discuss music, artists, media, and hopefully keep the spirit of radio alive. It's the Spirit of Radio podcast with your hosts, Ken Anthony and Frankie DeVita. And now, here's Ken and Frankie. This is the Spirit of Radio podcast. I'm Ken Anthony. I'm Frankie DeVita. We are in episode seven. Seven. Lucky seven. And our special guest today, Rick Emmett, that we all know from Triumph, but is an amazing solo artist in his own right. Uh, welcome, Rick. Thanks for being here. Thank you very much, Frankie. Yes, uh, it's, it's lovely to be here on Spirit of Radio. Are you named after the Rush song? Oh, uh, actually, kind of. Kind of, sort of. Kind of, sort of. Uh-huh. We, 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 are both, we are both former rock radio DJs here from Los Angeles. We both got... Um, shown the door last November. So we wanted to keep the spirit of radio alive. So we decided to start this podcast and be able to still talk about music, bring some uh, artists on. We bring other uh, radio DJs on and uh, comedians and things like that. So we just kind of wanted that feeling of uh, maybe like a morning show or something like that where we can, you know, still have that kind of entertainment and that dialogue about music and things like that. So you know, you know, Rick, the spirit of radio. We actually uh, thought about calling it the Magic Power Podcast. Yeah. but uh, <laughs> I was going to go there, but you me to it, Ken. Yeah. That was- <laughs> <laughs> but oh, unfortunately, uh, there was no way we were going to get the spirit of radio for our uh, intro. So yeah. we've, we've yeah. improvised. <laughs> well, that's another band in the in the. Toronto, right? Toronto area, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, gee, just a few similarities between Triumph and Rush, you think? Yeah, well, you know, as I've said in many, many interviews, that they were a little bit ahead of us, and they blazed trails, and they made it a lot easier for us. So we've always been very grateful for the fact that people will go, oh, three-piece band from Canada, are you anything like Rush? You know, it's like the (laughs) blessing and the curse, you know? Well, you guys did pave your own way, and you were uh, one of my favorites when uh, you, you know, allied forces, never surrender. I mean, I was totally into it, and so it, it's really, um, it's really great to meet you and be able to talk to you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that that was actually Rick, I my go favorite back to- part of the, the favorite time of the band was allied forces, never surrender. You know, um, I thought allied forces was maybe the best record we made. And it was when, mm-hmm. you know, talking about the spirit of radio and stuff, the spirit of, of triumph, the spirit of the band was captured the best on that record. And, you know, it's funny that you should say, you know, that that was what you liked, because uh, when I originally wrote the song Magic Power, I, it was it was autobiographical. Mm-hmm. And I had, you know, he gets into bed, he turns the, he pulls the covers overhead, he turns the little radio on. And I, at a certain point, I can't remember in production, I thought, you know, I should change the pronoun. I should make it be she because it'll actually make it more radio friendly. Uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, it's it's almost like I was thinking of myself as a nine-year-old kid when I had a transistor radio and used to put it under my pillow. And I was thinking, you know, that's universal. That's not just, a, you know, a guy in a rock band thing. That's everybody. I can't tell you how giddy Ken and I are right now that you even mentioned radio. Because that's one of the main things that we ask our artists. When 
What did radio mean to you? And when was the first time you heard yourself on radio? And do you remember what station it was? Uh, I do. Um, uh, the, the, the connection that I made to radio in the first place, I was about nine years old. And, and the story that I love to tell for this is um, I, I had two brothers. They've both since passed away. But um, w- my grandmother was in a, 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 she was an arthritic invalid and she was in a chronic care hospital that was run by uh, Roman Catholic nuns in Toronto. And um, they wouldn't let kids visit there. So uh, when my parents would go visit on Sundays, they couldn't afford babysitters. We would be out on the front lawn of like, my mother would spread out a blanket and and we would, and so uh, we would fight, (laughs) my brothers and I, and she'd be leaning out the window of of the hospital yelling at us like, yeah, you guys knock it off down there. So she got us a radio. And that was supposed to make it so we wouldn't fight. And then uh, we started fighting over which station we were going to listen to. And uh, so then she bought us all little transistor radios, little nine transistors that you could stick the thing in your ear, you know. That was the beginning of my, uh, as I've said many, many times, it was like I got a passport to the universe with that radio. You know, I could listen to uh, country music and, and, and classical stuff and, and ball games from the States if the wind was blowing the right way. It was just, you know, that radio was my thing. <laughs> anyway, so first time I heard myself on the radio, uh, Triumph, would it would have been 1976, first album came out, and we were playing a gig at a bar called the Knob Hill Tavern in Toronto, in Scarborough, which is a sort of a western suburb of Toronto. Uh, sorry, eastern. And... Um, it was like uh, we finished the gig, so it would have been 1.15, 1.30 in the morning. And uh, Canadian radio stations used to do a thing where in, we had CanCon, which were regulations about you had to play a certain amount of Canadian music. So the way they would get around it, of course, is they wanted to play, mm-hmm. you know, the regular hit parade. So they'd play Canadian albums at like, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, 1.30 in the morning. So I got in my car and I was driving home from the gig. And we were on this midnight thing. And so, you know, and I, I mean, I was thrilled. It was a crazy, wonderful thrill to hear it. But at the same time, you can never get around the fact that you're always being sort of hypercritical. So I was listening and thinking, the record doesn't have as much level as other people's records. It's, it's not. Mm. We all, geez, we, <laughs> yes. There's another lesson learned there, boy. We're going to have to be hotter when we mix and master next time. Anyways. Do you remember what station it was, Rick? Yeah, it was Chum FM in Toronto, C-H-U-M. And at the time, it was a hard rock. It now just plays, you know, uh, dance music and, and, you know, teen stuff. Um, It it has those kind of morning radio shows where, you know, hosted by Marilyn Dennis and and everybody's laughing and, you know. Morning Zoo. Yeah. So it's one of those kind of stations now. But back in the day, it was almost like counterculture kind of, you know. FM just jockey smoking dope and putting on Pink Floyd and going out to the bathroom. Well, speaking about back in the day, Rick, um, I have to mention that um, uh, I'm a little older than Frankie, and I remember working at a, I was working at a station in the Bay Area, San Jose, KSJO, in the 80s. Yeah. And I remember we did some shows with you guys. Um, I think you played at the Oakland Auditorium. Uh, something, I think it was the Oakland Auditorium. It was like the early to mid eighties. And I remember, I don't know if you came down, but I know Mike Levine came down. Yeah. And that, uh, that started kind of, yeah. Mike did a lot of the radio promo. 
Yes. Yeah. What I was going to say is that started my uh, my radio conventioneering with Mike Levine because he would oh. show up to all these conventions all oh, the time. Oh, yes. <laughs> ready to party. Oh, yeah. That was, that was Mike. For sure. And of course, he would do a day of show interviews because I, you know, I didn't want to blow my throat out. So I didn't want to do a lot of talking day of show. Um, So, yeah, Mike would often be the guy that would do those, too. So, yeah, Levine, he was a real radio dog. The the guys that were the uh, um, indie indie promo guys and uh, the guys that ran, you know, radio and records. And I can't remember them now. I'm trying to know Friday morning quarterback. I can't remember that. Right. But, you know, Mike knew them all. I think Mike was probably, for sure, he was the best radio promo guy that ever played in a band. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. I was going to say that. I was going to say <laughs> yes. that. He would call me up every once in a while, and it would just be like, hey, Ken, uh, our next single is blah, 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 blah. And it's like, and then I'd have the record guy call me up, and I'd say, I don't need to talk to you. Mike Levine from the band just promoted the record. Yeah, man. yeah we, already, we already bumped it into medium rotation because of Mike. <laughs> yeah. we're, we're not giving you anything. Yes. Oh, yeah. incredible. That's, that's awesome. Say hi and, to Mike. Wait, uh, do you I, see him I, every I once in a while or what? Before you go, wait, wait. That Like, probably, right. I'm in San Jose, you said, uh, was it Oakland Auditorium? You said. S- I think it was the Oakland Auditorium, and it was yeah. I think it was a KSJO show. Yeah, um, yeah. And it was I, in the yeah. I don't remember that specifically. I, I do remember that you know that neck of the woods because I remember Bill Graham and playing the Cow Palace. Exactly. Bill Graham and exactly. Thinking, hey, this is a guy that you know told Hendrix to cool it. <laughs> you know, like I right. Know, Bill Graham is like a legend, and so I remember those. But we graduated from the Cow Palace, so they turned it, they tore it down or something, you know. Yeah, it's not really, it's not really anymore. Yeah, and I remember the uh, Oakland Alameda County Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Is that was that what yeah. it was called? Yeah, and, it was called and, the Coliseum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that and is that the big outdoor baseball field? Well, they used to call them the day on the greens. Yeah. That's the uh, baseball field where the A's played. And then the yes. Oakland Arena right next door is where a lot of the concerts, the indoor oh, okay. concerts would be. So, so there you go. Okay. All right. Well, I'm But I remember speak. those days. Great, great stuff. It, it, do you still talk to Mike? Have you seen oh, Mike yeah, or talked yeah, with him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a Triumph documentary that's coming out in the fall made by Banger Films. And... Uh, so we've been looking at uh, rough cuts, and then actually the final cut came a couple of days ago. So we haven't actually convened yet as a, as a unit to you know sort of approve the the final cut, but that's coming. That'll be in the next few days. Well, please tell him that Ken Anthony from KSJO said hi. I think he I, he should remember me. <laughs> I will for sure. I will. I mention it to him. Like as soon as we finish this interview, I'll shoot him off a text or something, and I'll. That's awesome. I'll give so I help. was going to actually talk to you about the about the documentary. Lay it on the line. Um, uh, I had read a little excerpt from uh, I think it was um, Gil who said uh, it was probably supposed to be out by now, but it got pushed back a little bit. So maybe by end of year. Yeah, I the um, they were originally intending to launch it during the TIFF, the Toronto International Film Festival which has become sort of this global important kind of thing. But of course, because of COVID-19, you know, the plans of the festival have changed drastically. So, and I know that uh, some of the money that got put up for it came from Crave, 
which is Crave TV is like a streaming service in Canada. And so um, I think probably Crave is going to be squeezing them saying, come on, come on. We want that. You know, they're desperate for. We need, we need some new content. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then they need it because, you know, everybody's getting tired of, you know, all of the stuff that they've been, uh, you know, uh, hanging out, watching all, all the time. So, um, yeah, I think uh, I would think the fall, you know, it won't be any later than maybe October, November for sure. I can't wait. Isn't it, it's, it's no longer laid on the line. I think they're calling it Rock and Roll Machine now, I think. Oh, cool. Really? Okay. So, so that documentary, that must have been quite a trip down memory lane. And I'm sure there was some really good moments, but did you have some cringeworthy ones going down oh, that geez, lane yes. again? Sure. sure. And, and <laughs> you know, I hate to say it, but I actually ended up in tears at one point too. And of course they're using that. So it's embarrassing. <laughs> never mind. Yeah. Uh, because of course it tracks, you know, it's a pretty surreal kind of thing to have been a rock star in a, in a band that had that level of success. And we weren't even, I, I wouldn't say we were top level. We were kind of, you know, next level down, but um, still it was 13 years of my life where it's kind of like, you know, that old TV show, this is your life. And, you know, the bands we were in before we were in triumph. And so it's very surreal. And then of course it tracks the rise and then the fall. And, and, you know, when I'm leaving the band and when I'm quitting and, and uh, so, and then the 20 years that I didn't talk to Mike and Gil, wow. based on the fact that, you know, my brother who was passing away from cancer at the time sort of said, come on, you, you gotta, you gotta fix this. Like you gotta do this for me, but you gotta do it more for yourself. If this is baggage in your life. You've got to clean up. And I'm going, mm -hmm. don't talk to me about cleaning up my baggage. This is supposed to be about you. <laughs> but, but it, um, it was the catalyst and it got me so that uh, we got back together. So anyways, the, the documentary goes through all of that period and then oh, the reunion and the playing the gigs and oh, now the walk of fame and the hall of fame and the, this and the, that, and the, you know, yeah. and then we played this fan fest, which, you know, I'll seed your, for your listeners, you know, there's this incredible thing that happens towards the end of the documentary where the documentary guys flew in fans from all over the world. So the best fans they could find from, Brazil and Sweden and Hawaii and, you know, you name it, and uh, filled them up in a warehouse. And we got up on stage and played three songs. They didn't know we were going to do it. Wow. And we we're standing wow. there with our guitars, and they just go crazy. You know, it's like, I mean, even now, but the hair on my arms is standing up because I'm remembering this moment. What a great the feeling. The surge of the electricity was crazy. So, yeah, it was pretty good. And, uh, of course, they had hey, you know, 20, 20 cameras capturing it all. Hey, Rick, it's interesting you mentioned uh, not talking to uh, Mike and Gil for, for that period of time. Our last podcast was with Liberty DeVito, the drummer from Billy Joel. Mm. And he went through the same type thing. He and Billy did not speak for years and years and years. And now it's a love fest all over again. Mm -hmm. It's really fascinating how, I guess, that happens in bands it's kind of like a relationship. What would you say about all that? Well, I've just been reading a, a biography of uh, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And, the, you know, the, I mean, that's an unbelievable story of a band that stayed together for such a long time, the same guys. And then the fallout between, and it's funny how it's drummers, Petty and Stan Lynch, you know, had this yes. you know, heavy duty kind of falling out and he fired him eventually, you know. Um, 
And I guess it happens more with singer-songwriters. Like, you know, Billy, it, it, it wasn't like Billy Joel and the whatever, you know. It wasn't like Bruce Springsteen and the A Street Band or Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Right. It was just Billy Joel. But nevertheless, that whole singer-songwriter thing, it, it's like I think sidemen who are involved, they start to feel like, well, this is my this is my gig. This is my chair. You know, you can't replace me. I'm irreplaceable, you know. So, um in Triumph, it's a little bit different, you know. You know, the, we used to have. Well, can, can I swear on your podcast? Absolutely. Sir? Okay. Yes. So absolutely. We express yourself, have, Rick. Yeah, we had a phrase that we. It was a common thing in the band, and was like, when you have a a, a trio, you have a, a perfect democracy. You're going to have a vote, and it, it, something's going to get decided. And if you were the one that lost the vote, you had to eat shit and die. And that's what say, <laughs> if you lose the vote, you eat shit and die. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, I've, I eventually got to the point where, you know, it was like I was getting sick of being the guy that was having to eat the shit, you know. And yeah. they were kind of joined at the hip. They'd had the idea of the band before me. And I had come in as, you know, the, the junior partner sort of thing. And, um, yeah, I mean, that whole thing of... of uh, you know, some somebody in the band is going to be a dominant force. And, you know, now after all these years, you can pretty much tell it, it was always Gil's band. It was always Gilmore the drummer's band. Mm-hmm. And the documentary will make that fairly clear too, you know. And I kind of knew it, you know. And, uh, you know, eventually, I guess sometimes people rub up against, especially in a, in a situation of a, a singer-songwriter like a Billy Joel or a Tom Petty or, I mean, obviously that person's going to have a pretty dominant idea of what it is they want to do and how they want to go about it. And, you know, if, yeah. if the drummer starts, you know, complaining too much, then, you know, I guess maybe Billy's going to go like, you know, uh, and we used to call this bus factor. I think uh, James Taylor actually was the guy that coined the phrase. You, you hired guys based on bus factor. Were they good to hang around with? You know, so yeah. once if, if you lose that, uh-oh. You know, you're you're gonna get canned. You know, it's interesting you say that. I just saw I just saw another documentary uh, recently on the Go Go's, and it was fantastic. It's on Showtime, and the same thing happened. Um, a couple of band members were fired, and then they they talked to all of them, and the ones that were fired had one story, and the ones that weren't had a different story. But I guess the moral of this whole thing is it's all about a, a cultivated relationship. And it's not always going to be a, a smooth ride, I guess. Oh, it, it, it's very much, I mean, certainly in Triumph in the early days, we, you know, we used to say it was like the three musketeers. You're all, all for one and one for all. And, and you're willing to make any kind of uh, compromise or sacrifice in order to get it up and running. But once any band has been up and running more than about five, six, seven years, now it's like, Clearly what's happening, for example, is everybody's getting older. So everybody's getting a little more set in their ways. They're getting married and having kids. You know, they're starting to have their own sense of what it is they want out of their life. And now it's not necessarily this, you know, kids in their 20s, you know, uh, making any sacrifice because you want to just get the pot to piss in, you know, like. um, And, of course, money comes along. Exactly. And money means power. And. Yeah. So, you know, that happens with everybody. Like, 
I, you know, oftentimes I, I used to teach uh, music business and, uh, in, in Humber College in Toronto. And I did that for a couple of decades. And my life was like, you know, teach on Mondays and Tuesdays and then go out on the road on Thursdays and play gigs. Um, but I would tell the, the kids, like, uh, the, the story of, of, of uh, money and power, it's, go, it's going to happen. Think about the Beatles who are the most, yes. you know, the, the, the biggest example you can possibly imagine of success. And that career arc only lasted a decade, really. You know, you could maybe mm -hmm. say 11 years, but they, John and Paul were not talking to each other at the end, you know. And the Yoko factor, too. Exactly, yeah. And, you know, I mean, I think in the end she kind of got a bum rap because it was really Lennon becoming so drug dependent and then dependent on her to be hanging around and carrying the drugs, you know, like, I think that's kind of what was going on there. But um, anyways, that you, you look at that as, a, as an example and you say, you know, the, the most amount of success, the most amount of money you can possibly imagine, it was not enough to keep the band together. Wow. It's actually enough so you, stick dynamite into the cracks and blow it apart. So you, you, um, so you departed the band, but I read also that you kind of had, you know, you wanted to do a lot of your own stuff. You wanted to become more artistic and kind of break out of that mold. Um, but do you feel like you checked all the boxes in Triumph? Like you, you accomplished everything you set out to do there? Um, I, I think so. I, you know, um, that's sort of a strange way to put it, uh, you know, that, that I ticked all the boxes. I think I ticked all the boxes that I could tick, you know, it, mm -hmm. it's not just my band, you know, like one of right. the things that we're sort of delineating here in our conversation is that, you know, you, you can make a documentary about, you know, the go-go's you're going to tell a story, but you're going to make a choice and you're going to tell that story. You're not necessarily going to be mm -hmm. able to tell all the stories because you're not going to be able to make a 10 hour show, you know, that, right. right. Yeah. So, you know, everybody's story is a little different. And for me, and I wrote this on my own fan forum a couple of days ago, like eventually I'd sort of come to the feeling that triumph was like this box that I was in and I wanted to get out of the box, you know, and part of that is I'm not blaming the other guys necessarily for all of it because there's record companies and there's agents and there's, you know, there's right. all this other stuff, uh, attendant kinds of pressures and things, but also just the way that the music business is. And that's an even bigger thing that it's like, oh, geez, no, you got to make an album that fits into this format. You know, you got to go out and play these kind of side. And I'm thinking, you know, I've always wanted to make a classical guitar record. I've always wanted, you know, which has been the lovely thing about, and, you know, that was very smooth of you, Frankie. You were sort of introducing the fact that <laughs> I, I, Exactly. I'm here to promote this round hill stuff where they put uh, out uh, Frankie. Yes, that's that's the thing. The thing I was leading into uh, is yes. that you have broken out of you broke out of Triumph at this point and wanted to do your own thing. And one of the things I did want to say, um, I've been listening to your stuff. You are definitely not a one trick pony. You, um, my goodness. Uh, let me see. Let me just uh, name off some of the things. Uh, you play rock, blues, jazz, folk, classical, flamenco. <laughs> which immediately made me think of Steve Stevens because he's a flamenco guitar player as well. Uh -huh. um, and li listening to some of your, your stuff, like, uh, for example, um, Find Your Way from the Liberty Manifesto album was a rock feel to me. Yep. Gasoline from the Rock Quartet album had a Stevie Ray Vaughan bluesy feel to me. 
Yep. Uh, and I hope you're, um, I hope that you are complimented by my comparisons because these are all great. Oh yeah, great no, artists. totally. And then, yeah. and then the, the way back home song from the good faith album had a steely Dan feel to me, which yeah, are all well, very you know, different. You're naming stuff that I love. I love all that stuff. And you know, that eclecticism was always a part of who I was right from the get go. I mean, I was in a, a more progressive kind of rock band before I joined triumph. And if I'd have had my druthers, you know, you talked about ticking boxes. I think I would have preferred to push Triumph towards being a little bit more progressive than it was. Like a Genesis or like Not a Genesis that. or Peter and Gabriel? Well, it's a trio, so you can't go that far, can you? <laughs> so, right. But, but there, is, there is Rush, right? And, and I mean, the thing is, a band is only going to reflect what the people in it bring to it. Like, that was the great thing about Rush was that, it was very much this really integrated ensemble where they were pulling the best of each other, you know, to make this thing happen. Um, and Triumph was a little bit more about, you know, uh, just the, the kids in the seats, you know, the, 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 the idea of um, uh, finding something that radio would like. And meanwhile, here I'm this guy, like when I first started playing guitar, first guitar, the good one that I owned was a nylon string classical guitar. And, uh, wow. When I was in high school, I would play Thursday night coffee houses at the YMCA, and I would play James Taylor tunes and Paul Simon songs, and I would play, you know, talk about flamenco. I mean, I was never trained as a flamenco player, but I saw Roy Clark on Hee Haw play Malaguena, and I went, okay, I got I to gotta put that yeah. in my repertoire. That's so cool. So I was always very eclectic, and that was why I needed to sort of get out of Triumph so that I could start pursuing and it didn't happen right away. Like Round Hill didn't get the first three albums um, because they, there's still a Canadian company that owns those. But um, mm -hmm. they got everything. Once I decided, you know, middle, like 95, 96, I went, I'm going indie. I'm just going to do my own thing. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. going to make my own records. And, you know, as Tom Petty would say, damn the torpedoes. I, you know, I'm not mm -hmm. going to listen to anybody else. I'm just going to do what I want to do. First record I made was a classical guitar one. So you did, so they have just reissued 11 solo albums for you on July 10th. So they're out and you're streaming all over the place now, yes. uh, which is great. I, I have Spotify. So I was, I was pulling up a lot of your stuff on Spotify, which is great. So are you discovering that you have a whole new crop of fans with all of these different types of albums you're putting out? Um, we don't, I don't know yet, Frankie. I mean, I think what I'll have to do is, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm doing a whole bunch more of, uh, interviewing and, and marketing and promo than I've ever done for years, you know, uh, because Round Hill, they, they approach it very much like a, like an old school major label kind of thing. Uh, of course it's a different world. So, and I think, you know, they've only released these things and I, you know, I don't want to be speaking negatively about this lovely new partnership that I have that they, they've only put these out uh, as a digital re-release you know, this is not like they're doing vinyl and box sets or anything, which they are doing for Triumph, by the way. And I think in the same way that Triumph kind of rode on Rush's coattails, now Rick Emmett seems to be riding on Triumph's coattails. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're doing mine. And, you know, the guy that runs the thing, is, his name is Josh Groose. And, you know, I'm very, very grateful for the fact that I, I think he's just, bottom line, he's a fan who has a lot of money. <laughs> and so... You know, he decided, 
I'm putting this out. You know, I don't care what anybody else thinks. This is the music I grew up on, and I admire this guy. So it's lovely to have at this stage of my life, at 67 years of age, mm-hmm. it's like uh, I've got, you know, a, a, a sponsor or something, you know. Uh, well, what do they call them? In the, a patron. Yes. Patron of the arts. Yeah. Well, you know, Rick, um, what's amazing about this whole story is you obviously have always been very artistic and eclectic. You go in a band like Triumph. If you try to go the direction that you've done the last, all these solo albums, first, before Triumph, would, would, you, would you have had the same appreciation for what you're doing now? Um, really good question. Because, of course, what you're sort of uh, touching on here is the division of art and commerce. Yes. I mean, you know... Rock and roll in its infancy was this bastard child between money and and uh, sex hormones. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, you know, yes. that, that whole thing in the late 50s of cars and drive-ins and, and, and you know, ducktails and, and the kids having their own fashion. Like, my parents' generation didn't have any. Well, they had a little bit of that. Bobby Soxers, I suppose it was a little bit. But generally speaking, my parents... They wore the same clothes that, that my grandparents wore, you know. So that teenage culture starts, and it's it's about money. You know, it's about music publishing, and record companies are starting to realize, you know, guys like uh, Chuck Berry are signing deals where he goes, look, I'll give you a brand-new Cadillac card. Just give me your publishing, you know. Yeah. Yeah. So there was always that that thing that – and even if you like the stuff that I loved, the Beatles and 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 um, you know Clapton and 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 the Yardbirds and then Led Zeppelin and, and Deep Purple and you know as I was making my way towards more progressive things, Yes and Gentle Giant and Genesis and that kind of stuff, um, like all that stuff, it was still about money. It was still about getting on the radio. It was still about selling a lot of records. You know, first forty fives, then selling albums. Mm-hmm. So you get in a band like Triumph. Everybody, every musician that's playing bars is going, oh, we got to have our own original music. We got to make our own records. We got to try and get a record deal. You know, that was the huge thing. I, like, I, I don't think kids in basement bands worry about trying to get record deals so much anymore because they're thinking, no, we got to get it on YouTube and we got to, you know. Exactly. Yeah, we got to have the streaming thing and we got to get that going so that everybody will be downloading our stuff. So it's not the same world, but that was the... That was the commerce of it. And, of course, for the kids now, the bar's been lowered. You can make a record on your laptop in your basement. Everybody can. So it's not a question of making the record. Whereas in Triumph's case, it was, no, you got to get a record deal so that somebody will give you 25000 or 50000 bucks so that you can make an album. Because you had to get anointed, you know. Again, it was sort of like patronage, right? So, um, you know, your question is a really good one. Yes, I think that I probably had a glimmer somewhere inside of, no, first I got to get the commercial base so that I have an audience that will like me, even if I start sticking both feet in my mouth and uh, shooting myself in those feet. Uh, You know, like once I started doing all of this very self-indulgent eclectic stuff, I was always thinking like, well, if it ends tomorrow, it's been an incredible ride. Like, what a great carnival ride it's been, you know. Um, and I was in my 40s by then, you know. 
late 40s, probably by the time I was really getting self-indulgent. But um, I don't know. Um, I, I think I used to tell kids in college, first, you got to find an audience. Then you got to build one. And then you, uh, you got to keep it. And those three stages are hard stages of careers, no matter what. And, you know, people like David Bowie and Madonna, and they figured it out. Tom Petty is a guy that he kept being able to do what he wanted to do, and he didn't care what other people. Bob Dylan is a fantastic example of somebody that he did not care about the marketplace. He just cared about being Bob Dylan, you know, yeah. and yeah. it means reinventing it on a lot of levels. So in a way, I was reinventing, but I was also just doing what comes naturally. So where did all that versatility come from? Like, you know, you mentioned the Beatles and Zeppelin and, and a lot of those type of artists. But where did the versatility of the, the blues and the jazz and the folk, were you, were you playing that kind of music prior to your commercial success? Uh, okay, so uh, Rick Emmett 101. Uh, when I was seven years old... <laughs> My mom used to drag me off on Thursday nights to the church choir practice. And I was a first soprano mm. boy in the choir. So that was really, and I was singing in the school choir at the time. I kind of had this natural gift, this ability to sing. So singing was the first thing. And then the first guitar was around nine or 10. And of course the Beatles on Ed Sullivan was around 1964. I would have been 11. And it was like, okay, you know, I'm the, the die is cast, you know, singing guitar. Now I write a song and play it for my mom. And my mom says, Rick, you're a genius. This is incredible. And of course it was horrible. And it was, you know, childish, <laughs> you know, two chords in the truth. <laughs> and and um, so, you know, the die is cast. And so here I go. And, and, now, what's happening in the music business, and if you guys can remember the 60s, and I, I, Frankie, you probably weren't even born yet, but um, <laughs> they, they, uh, they, that whole thing was exploding of, like, I call it the Yardbirds alumni, Jeff Beck and Jimmy Page and, and Eric Clapton, and now they're branching off, and Clapton and Hendrix are starting to do these things in Cream and, and Hendrix Experience, and so the whole thing of guitar you don't just strum chords now and, and like, you know, Jerry Marsden and the pacemakers, like now you've got to become, you know, a, a guitar hero is a big part of it. You know, everybody's trying to do that. So uh, meanwhile, uh, you know, it's Christmas time and my brother's buying me uh, Julian Bream records and Andre Segovia records. And I'm going, Oh geez. Yeah, this is something great. And then I'm getting close to the end of high school. And, um, I get, I, you know, I'm getting pretty good at what I'm doing. And part of it is because I can sing, I'll get gigs that other guys won't. So I can literally get a suit and get a gig in a bar mitzvah band or a country and Western band three nights a week while I'm still in my last year of high school. And I'm oh. making money and buying nice guitars. And it's like, what am I going to do after? Well, I'm, and I wanted to be a football player, but I kept getting my bones broken. So it was like, well, I can't play sports. I'm going to play music. That's what I'm going to do. So I had my union card. I'm, I'm doing this stuff. But I'm out of high school. It's like my parents are going, no, no, you got to go to college. I go, well, okay, I'll go to music college. So I went for one semester, and it was a jazz program. And so you had to have chops. You had to read music, and I was not very good at it. 
but I got bit by that bug of jazz, which is a horrible bug to be bitten by because it's only 1% of, of the marketplace. <laughs> so, but you know, so that became a part of me. Uh, meanwhile, you're still playing in basement bands and you're playing rock and you're hoping that that's going to happen. And then that's what happened. But I had all of this other stuff, you know, uh, which I don't know if most guys that play in basement bands have had that. I don't know if they sang in church choirs or, you know, I mean, I played violin in the school orchestra for five, four, wow. five years because I spent a lot of time in high school. <laughs> That's the foundation. Um, the guitar players, kind of a two-pronged question for me, Rick. Um, some of your favorite guitar players are, number one, and number two, how many guitars do you own or have owned? Because there's a whole other culture thing about guitars. I'm not like a guitar nerd, but I know you talk to a guitar guy, it's like, okay, like Jimmy yes. Page is putting out a book about all of his guitars and everything. So yes. let's start with some of the guitars that uh, influence you and tell us about your guitars. Okay. Well, I mentioned, uh, you know, the, that run and I'm, you know, threw around a bunch of names. I would say, you know, the, the first role model was Clapton, you know, mm. even more than Hendrix. I think I wanted to be Eric Clapton. I thought he was cooler. You know, Hendrix was a little bit too, you know, lighting things on fire and thrusting it through his legs. <laughs> yeah. The very stuff that Bill Graham said, you got to knock that off, man. Just play. Yes. Come on, you're Jimi Hendrix. Just play. <laughs> um so I like Clapton, and that sort of led me, uh, Jimmy Page, uh, Led Zeppelin. Um, but I liked Richie Blackmore at Deep Purple a lot. He was kind of mm. like the first role model I had. And then um, I loved Yes, and I loved Steve Howe. You know, one minute he's playing wow. a Portuguese vajuela, the next minute he's playing a double neck, the next minute <laughs> he's playing, you know, a, a lap pedal steel, um, you know. And, and he played those big jazz box guitars, even though he, he, he was in a rock band. So I just thought he was the cat's meow. I went, and mm -hmm. that, does that ever make me sound old? <laughs> cat's meow. No, that's, I've heard that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, okay. So, um, but then, you know, you, you get to a certain age and now, you know, you don't really have heroes and role models much anymore. You're really just pulling from everywhere, you know, like, Joe Pass was a guitar player that I just went, man, this guy is just so liquid and so beautiful, uh, uh, an artist, you know? So that was more eclectic, you know, that didn't show up in, in my guitar playing until, you know, I could be self-indulgent in my, in my fifties. Okay. So now guitar collection. Um, yeah, <laughs> this is like a disease. <laughs> Uh, yeah, are you are you addicted to guitars like every other guitarist I've ever <laughs> yes, <laughs> spoken yes, with? Yes, I am, sir. I you know my name is Rick and and I'm an addict. Um, <laughs> uh, okay, when I started out, I probably had about eight, ten, something <laughs> like that. And then you know once Triumph started happening and it was going really good, and then you're getting endorsement deals. You know the guitars are just coming in left and right. So, and Triumph, we had warehouse, we had the studio, but we also had warehouses where I could warehouse things. And so at one point I got up to about 150 guitars. Unbelievable. Yeah. Oh no, it's going to get worse. So <laughs> I, uh, I, then I, I purged. I said, okay, 
I'm going to start, I'm going to give some to charities. I'm going to uh, give some to schools so that, you know, kids could have nice guitars to play on in, in high school music programs. So I purged myself and got it down to about a manageable 35 or 40. And then um, it started to grow again. And, uh, and I went, okay, I'm going to make a list of all the guitars that I've owned in my life. And I got to about 320. Wow. And there's some that I, I don't remember and some that I've forgotten. Because you get endorsement deals and sometimes they'll give you a couple to try. And you go, yeah, I don't like them. I, and you give them back, you know. So anyways, mm-hmm. now, you know, cut to uh, fast forward to now. And we downsized when our kids all, you know, became adults and moved out. We downsized our house. And so when I moved here, I had to purge again. And now I've got Ooh. it down to around 40 or so, you know. Wow. Have you seen Rick Nielsen's warehouse? Sorry? Rick Nielsen's warehouse. Where yeah, he, no, I know. Rick He's Nielsen crazy. has hundreds of guitars. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. There, you know, there's some guys out there. <laughs> and- yeah. Do you have a chance to uh, to play them all, or or I guess the other part of it is, what's fascinating to me is that you could pick up a guitar and go, okay, I want to play this guitar because I'm looking for this sound, or you'll get a totally different guitar looking for a different sound, and that must be that must be the fun of it. It's like it's like it's like a it's like a toy shop of guitars. It is, and you know, like I'll give you some examples. I I did a country session for a friend of mine last week. And um, so, you know, I would get out some of my tellies, but my, some of my tellies have been souped up and they have, you know, uh, 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 humbucking pickups in the neck position and, uh, you know, in the bridge position and all that kind of stuff. So um, I, you try those and you go, I'm going to use this one on that session, you know. Uh, and, you know, before I was talking to you people this afternoon, I played on about six or seven guitars because I got to do one of these rock and roll fantasy master classes on Thursday night coming mm-hmm. up, I thought, oh, they're going to want me to demonstrate some things. And so which which couple of guitars should I have hanging around? And so, you know, I'll show you guys, like, this is the one that I would normally use when I play acoustic, but it's an electric guitar, but it's an acoustic electric. So this is like... Please play, some, please play something for us. Oh. You're killing me. Wow. <laughs> Anyway, so so wow, that was awesome. Yeah, no, that was so, awesome. Yeah, in my house, like there's guitars like this. You know, sort of every forty-five feet, there's a guitar stand, and you know, <laughs> I got I once got to meet uh, Chet Atkins. Uh, Triumph was originally signed to RCA Records in the states, and I, we were playing in Nashville, and I got to go and just after breakfast with the local RCA Records guy to to meet Chet Atkins in his office in the building on Music Row in Nashville that Chet Atkins owned, but RCA rented office space from him. So, wow. yeah, Chet was nobody's fool, right? So, but when mm. you went into Chet's office, he had a guitar in every corner in his office. And then and in the uh, in the waiting room, there, there, were, there was guitars on stands. And, like, they were everywhere. And I thought, oh, when I grow up, I want to be Chet Atkins, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard, uh, speaking of guitarists, because uh, I could talk about this all the time. I love the sound of the guitar. It's my favorite. Have you heard Tommy Emmanuel? Oh, Tommy is my favorite guitar player on the planet Earth. And Chet Atkins okay. once I figured, said, I figured as much. Yeah, yeah Chet yeah. once signed a guitar to Tommy and said, you're the number one guitar player. 
And, and Chet used to have a thing where he, he had CGP. You know the way lawyers have, you know, let us after their names? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, Chet would sign CGP, Certified Guitar Player. And he, and he told yeah. Tommy, you're a, you're a CGP. I saw him once. Yeah. No, Tommy's the I good. saw him once up in the Bay Area and just blew me away. Uh, yeah. I don't know, Frankie, if you're familiar with him, but you, you talk about a guitar god to guitarists, basically. Yeah. Um, and he just plays all different styles. Just a wonderful guy I, uh, from Australia. And it's just uh, just incredible. So anyway, I just I just wanted, I figured you would know who he was if you're oh, a, yeah. a guitar I, you fan. Know, I've, I've uh, played on a couple of shows with Tommy. Uh, um, really? I, yeah. Uh, in fact, now I think he opened for me at, uh, in a in a nightclub years ago in Vancouver that was part of a music mm. festival thing. And so it, it wasn't really like he opened for me. It was more like you know one guy's on at eight p.m., one guy's on right. at nine p.m., one guy's on at ten p.m. You know, and people from the convention are you know coming in and out of this bar. And of course, when I saw him play, I went, "Okay, I I don't want to go on." <laughs> somebody get me, somebody get me a hacksaw so I could cut my hands off because this guy is just so good. Wow. He was unbelievable. And, and then, you know what's uh, funny about him is what's funny about him. Excuse me, Rick. Is that yeah. here's an example of a guy that decided I'm just going to play my style of guitar, and he's not that well known. But yet he's so revered. And that's it was that, that commerce versus art thing we were talking about. That's what I find fascinating about it. Yes. But, I, you know, the thing, too, is that, like, if you're a guitar player and you hear Tommy Emanuel, you know you're hearing, like, one of the best guys on the planet Earth. And the thing is, Tommy is just so – he's, like, he's a sweetheart of a human being. He's he, Like, yes. it, it means nothing to him. Well, I'll tell you a Tommy story. Uh, he's, he's flying into a small town. And uh, the 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 uh, baggage gets held up, um, and so everybody's standing around this little baggage carousel. But Tommy's got a guitar that he carries on with him on the plane. So he's looking around and he sees all these people waiting for their bags. He gets the guitar out. He climbs up on a chair and he starts playing for everybody while they're waiting for yes. their bags. It's it yes. blows awesome. out of him. It, the same way that people breathe, Tommy plays music. And if he'd have been a drummer, he would have been one of the best drummers on the planet Earth. If he'd been a piano player, he would like. It's just he's music personified, you know. But he came from yeah. a musical family. Yeah. His like the Emanuels were this Australian, like not like the Jacksons, but you know, like mm-hmm. his brother plays guitar too and is pretty damn good. Um, and the Emanuel brothers were actually a, a brother act in Australia before Tommy you know, went out on his own and became the solo guy. And he lives in Nashville now, I think, or somewhere around there. I think he does. Yeah, I think he does. Well, that's amazing that, uh, yeah, you know, what's what's great about that, Frankie, is that we're talking about, and we've always talked about this, Rick, every musician we've talked with, they love music more than any human being loves music. And it makes sense, right? I mean, you're a musician. Why are you doing that? But it's amazing how, Every musician we've talked with, we talk about other musicians and they talk about them in glowing terms. It's mm-hmm. just a love affair with music. That's really what it's all about. Oh, yeah, totally, totally. And of course, you know, I mean, part of the thing of me going solo was that there were things that I wanted to do that had nothing to do with money. 
or commerce or fame or any of that stuff. But it, you know, it, it, you still want to have enough success that you make enough money that you can afford to do to make another one. You yes. know, we mm-hmm. want to play a concert and, and sell enough tickets that the promoter goes, oh, we'll have you back to Cleveland next year. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> that, that's, you know, that's well, what you're hoping for. So, yeah. But yeah, I mean, Tommy is he's on a level above all of that. Well, I'm sure you're gonna you're going to continue to uh, put out solo albums, and you I'm sure you have a lot more uh, to give us musically speaking. But um, I've heard some good news recently that you and Mike and Gil are are thinking about recording more Triumph music. Well, that's that would be news to me. Um, really, I, I know that I know that the documentary is probably going to set some things in motion. And I think one of the things that Roundhill is doing, I don't, I don't want to be talking too much out of school here, but uh, one thing is they're doing a, I know they're doing a big triumph box set and that's going to be in the early next year. And there's projects afoot as part of that. And we've mentioned the documentary, but there's also another thing where Mike Klink, who was a record producer guy who had done, in uh, the most famously Guns N' Roses Appetite for Destruction, but he had done the Triumph Sport of Kings record. Um, and so Clink apparently has been doing some kind of a project where he's been trying to get people to do cover versions of Triumph stuff. So um, Very cool. Yeah, like a tribute kind of an album. So I think that's in the works or being talked about. I don't know how much, um, you know, I don't, I don't know how far along it is, but... Yeah, but, you know, speaking of nice, positive things that are going on, and you mentioned, uh, you know, make other records, there's there's uh, 24 tracks that people can download off my site, rickhammett.com, that are new stuff. It's called Folk Songs for the Farewell Bonfire, but I just call it Bonfire Sessions. And they're just voice and guitar, or there's six jazz guitar pieces, but there's 18 just songs, like me with my guitar, because I wanted to do a record like Bob Dylan had done in 1962, where... John Hammond he just went in and he and he played his songs and and Hammond said well we should do another take and Bob Dylan went no that's it I'm done it was one of my favorite so it's records. on Rick RickEmmett.com yeah R I K E M M E T T dot com and and, and I, we, and we have to say R, we have to say R I K go I'm sorry I'm sorry go yes. ahead yeah no no go ahead yeah R I K E M M E T T it it gets misspelled a fair bit that it's oh, R I K I did read a Yes. I did read a story about that. They they misprinted it on your first album. On the album, first album. That's so what it was. You yeah. just went with it all these years. I, yeah, I used to be a standard R-I-C-K Rick, and then they, they did the typo on the first album. And I went, okay, I'm not going to fight well, that, City Hall. I'll just become Scandinavian. That's fine. No, that's that's taking it for the team. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So I, it, 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 it's weird. It's like in my life now, R-I-K it's kind of like that was like my stage name. It was a very subtle one. Nevertheless, it was like, that was a, like my mother would never, ever give me a birthday card or a Christmas thing or anything without, it was R-I-C-K. She was never going to spell it R-I-K, even though. <laughs> Anyways, I was going to tell you, I, I think I've got a deal. Uh, I, I've, I've signed off on the email memo. I haven't signed the actual contract yet, but I've got a book of poetry coming out. Did read about that, yeah. And then I'm going to have a memoir. So it's like it's a two book deal, and it looks like it's going to happen. So, you know, ladies and gentlemen, I am now going to be a published author, 
That is awesome. Yeah. So that's a that's a bucket do, list thing. You, you talk about ticking things off. That's one of my bucket list things. You look very proud and very happy about that. That's awesome. That's really good. Um, I, I want to ask you too. Are it, when you do your memoir, do you put out an audio book on it too? I love the audio oh, books. I want to do that for the poetry as well. You know, for sure. You oh know? yeah. And when I was talking to the publisher, who I won't I won't go into too much detail yet because you know I don't want to jinx it, but. Um, yeah, they said, oh, audio. Yeah, yeah, audiobooks. Definitely. That's, we're into that. So, yeah. Can you, I, I'm like already, I'm kind of happy about this. Like, I'm going to have Rick Emmett reciting poetry to me in my ears. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it could oh, happen. Oh, man. It could yeah. happen, Frankie. It could I'm happen. looking forward to that. Well, you did know, you we guys check out the, uh, the Did you guys check out the audiobook? James Taylor did his first uh, memoir, I, autobiography. I have it downloaded. I haven't started it yet, but I do yeah. have it downloaded already. And it's pretty cool. And there's little bits of music in it and stuff too. So it's, it, it's pretty hip and it's only the yeah, first part of his life up to, you know, sort of when he, he got his record deal with Apple and it, you know, things were taken off and he got the fire and rain and now he had a hit and yeah. And then, so I clearly there's going to be other installments. I, I I'm in the middle of the, uh, of the Elton John book right now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I haven't done that um, one yet. Well, we can we could talk to you. You you have such a wealth of history. Uh I, I mean it was really hard for me to pinpoint what I really wanted to ask you. We could do this all day. Um but I do want to reach back a bit on something that um well Ken wasn't living in Southern California. I'm from Southern California and one of the big things that happened down here which I was not at but did listen to on the radio was you were a part of the 83 Us Festival. Wow. And you played on Heavy Metal Day. Yes. And I just want to know, you played with like Ozzy and Judas Priest and the Scorpions and Van Halen. And I just wanted you to just give me a little a little snippet of what that was like. Uh, well, you know, typically like uh, a lot of things in, in, in my life, it was very surreal. Because really, you know, for me, a gig is just a gig. All I want to do is make sure that I can get up on stage and deliver the best show that I can. So I'm, you know, playing it really close to the vest, having a nap back at the hotel, but you know that it's uh, going to be a crazy show when you go to the, instead of a limo, you go in a helicopter and the helicopter mm -hmm. is flying over fields of human flesh. Like there's just wow. quarter of a million people easily. Like just, it was unbelievable. Um, and then when you get on stage, uh, there's all of these cameras and, and the, 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 the barricade is so far, like the people are, are a hundred yards away. So, you know, there's something surreal about that, that you're playing for all these people, but really you're just playing for the cameras. Um, but also you get to meet, we got to meet Steve Wozniak of Apple and he became like, a, he wanted us on the show. Like, because we were not like the other metal bands in studs and leather and riding Harleys up on stage. And <laughs> Motley Crue was on that bill, too. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, the backstage was like insanity. I mean, you can, Van Halen was the headliner. They had a compound that looked like Lord of the Flies. And, you know, the, the TV actresses and stuff were coming and going all day, you know. <laughs> so, you know, um, yeah, it was nuts. But uh, yeah, so Wozniak, he introduced us on stage and we were like the band in white kind of these Canadian guys that were playing, you know, these songs about, you know, the magic power of the music. And, 
you know, yeah. yeah, all this, all this sort of uh, uh, positive kind of inspirational kinds of things, you know, uh, yeah. So it, we, it was a little different for us, but the you know critical consensus after the day was that we'd sort of stolen the show um, because we had really just kind of focused on let's just get out there and let's just let's just really play. Let's just you know bear down and, and just rock. And it worked. Yeah. That's awesome. I, I watched some of that footage last night and uh, with you guys flying in in the helicopter and, and watched a good portion of the set. Uh, like I said, I wasn't there. I was listening to it on the radio. I do remember back then. But uh, wow, it, when you said a sea of people, it was crazy. It, it's, it uh, was. It, it, it was surreal. It was a great thing to be a part of. You get on stage and you look out and it was a really hot day and it was mostly guys because it's heavy metal day. So it's, you know, mostly males and yeah. they're, you know, they're mostly white guys and they take their tops off because they're so hot. It's 90 degrees. Right. So it's pink skin as far as you can see. <laughs> like it just, it's like That's a sea funny. of flesh that goes out and over the hills and out of sight. And you're going, oh okay, this gosh. is so weird. Like this is just... Get your head down and just play, you know? Well, this is great. Well, uh, thank you for that trip down memory lane. Um, You're welcome. Uh, so you have 11 solo albums that are now uh, uh, reissued and streaming. Go check out Rick's music. It's just, it's amazing. Uh, the documentary's coming out soon. Um, you've got a book of poetry and a memoir in the works. Uh, did I mention the documentary? Yeah. And yes. maybe, yeah. maybe, just maybe some new Triumph music. Maybe. I'm going to keep my fingers crossed for that. Yeah, we'll see. I don't know about that. That's the first I've heard of that. He said. Maybe I just broke the news to you. Maybe you just don't even know. <laughs> I yet. think I think uh, Frankie's wishing it into existence. Yeah. yeah. Or, manifesting or, it. <laughs> or publicists are generating some kind of, you know, oh, that's, that's my funny. guess, you know. All right. Well, thank you, people. This has been lovely. Well, Rick, thank you very much. Thank you yeah. very much. Thanks so much. My pleasure. This was a, a, a great conversation, and um, you're welcome back on the Spirit of Radio podcast anytime. All right. Thank you. Thanks again, Rick. I'm Ken Anthony. I'm Frankie DeVita. This is the Spirit of Radio podcast. You can find us on Facebook, uh, Instagram. You can also email us at thespiritofradiopodcast at gmail.com. Keep the faith. Thanks for joining us on the Spirit of Radio podcast. We'll have another episode coming soon. Please feel free to like, share, or comment. You can reach Ken and Frankie at the Spirit of Radio Podcast at gmail.com. The Spirit of Radio Podcast. Keeping the spirit of radio alive.